You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Before diving into this episode of the podcast, I'd like to recognize the traditional territory in which myself and my guests are occupying as we have our conversation. I'm currently in North Vancouver, British Columbia, on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, Stolo, and Squamish nations. My first guest is out in Christina Lake, British Columbia, which is on the traditional territory of the Okanagan Nation, the Sinixt, and the Tunaha Nation. And my second guest is in the Courtney Comox Valley and is on the traditional territory of the Comox First Nation, Tulaman Nation, and the Homalco First Nation. Now, the past two weeks since last episode have been frustrating to say the least. The first two episodes of the fall were the most listened to episodes in the podcast history. And it was great to see that kind of support. Now, as of this recording, last episode was one of the least listened to episodes ever. Now, I've got some feedback from listeners essentially saying that although they may agree on the science of climate change, the use of the term climate change is polarizing. This is, for the most part, a cultural impediment within the United States of America, where there are two political parties, one that believes the science and one that either doesn't or chooses to ignore it. And frankly, either of those creates an action that is indistinguishable. The latest federal election here in Canada has resulted in a minority government. One that will force all parties to work together. A few days before the election, I had the chance to speak with all of my local candidates running to be my member of parliament. Now, if you're not familiar with parliamentary politics, you can easily read about it on Wikipedia. When I asked each of my candidates what the single biggest issue facing us right now is, they all said climate change. And this includes the right-wing, Republican-like Conservative Party of Canada. Climate change is the single biggest threat facing our planet. And since mountain bikers exist on this planet, it is the single biggest threat facing us too. In this episode, we'll be hearing about a mountain bike community on the front lines of climate change and how mountain biking made them stronger and more resilient. Mountain bikers have a lot of skin in the game that is climate change, and we have a role to play in addressing it. I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 70 of Frontlines. Today, I'm joined by two longtime friends of the podcast and past guests. The first, Jay Darby, who joined us last episode. Just a reminder, he's the the chair of the Imba Canada BC Council, but also works as the trails and training coordinator for the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. Now, those of you who've listened to the show in the past will be familiar with the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program, and you'll also be familiar with my other guest, Patrick Lucas. He's the executive director of that program. Hi to both of you. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brent. Great to be here again, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me on. For for starters, let's kind of just uh, begin with, uh, Jay, what, what uh, you've kind of done with some of the work with the, the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. I know uh, we've covered the program twice in, in two past episodes, and, and Patrick, you've been on the show twice before. And and uh, and so, Jay, you've just kind of started working with the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. What uh, What types of things have you been doing over the last year? So yeah, I came on uh, last fall and, and did a whole bunch of work this spring and summer with Patrick and the program. And my main role is going into uh, rural Indigenous communities throughout BC and doing training programs with youth and out-of-work adults, 
you know, teaching them trail building skills, doing trail layout, doing some trail design, and just, you know, working with the communities to create active recreation opportunities in community or near community um, in some of the most remote and beautiful places throughout the province, working with the people who, you know, lived on these lands for for thousands of years and, and trying to build and and help foster new relationships with the next generation and their territories on which they still reside. So it's been a pretty amazing experience this summer, driving all over the province, visiting some really, really remote and beautiful places and working with some amazing and super interesting people and really just great, great youth, um, amazing kids we got to work with all over. It was, it was a pretty, pretty fun summer. <laughs> And, uh, and Patrick, the, since the last time that, that we spoke, we spoke on uh, a document that, that you created. Um, and I, and I'm blanking on the, the name of it. Perhaps you can, you can remind me. I know it was a, it was a, a long title. Um, but in essence, it was working with, with First Nations communities on recreation projects. Um, and that since has been published and is now available for, uh, for anybody to, to review. Yeah. The document is called Working in a Good Way. Uh, and it's available for download off the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC website. Anybody who's interested can go and get it there. And that document came about as a result of working uh, with First Nations and non-First Nation uh, groups on recreation projects and reconciliation projects over the last seven years. And just kind of lays out some of the key lessons that we've learned and some of the best practices that we've seen that lead to enduring sustainable trails and relationships between peoples that are based on mutual trust and respect. So uh, last episode, we kind of introduced the, the topic of, of climate change and asked the question how, you know, can we as, as mountain bike trail advocates and, and trail builders and, and trail stewards, can we do something to kind of address climate change? And, uh, and there was uh, some really great kind of responses and, and answers to that. And I'm excited to kind of dive down this, this topic, this theme for the, the next few episodes. You know, I think it, it, it might be strange, it might not be strange, but a lot of the things that have kind of crept up and, and come in are some of the, the things that we use to address diversity and, and so our lack thereof in, in the mountain bike community. When I covered that topic pretty heavily in, in the first season of, of the podcast, some of the things that I had heard was reaching out to new communities, new riders. And so reaching out to cycling groups that aren't necessarily focused on mountain biking, bringing the trails to the people so that it's easier for people to get to mountain bike trails. And, and both of those things uh, have kind of come up as ways that we as trail advocates can address climate change. If we can build trails closer to home, then we don't need to drive to get to the trails. If we can kind of engage cycling advocates uh, a little bit more and work with them, we can become allies with them. And so I, I've I've kind of noticed a lot of similarities with addressing both of these two issues and 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 these two problems, and, and there's similarities in there, which is which is really interesting. One of the things that, that we always hear about climate change is that it affects more rural places first. And so we in in cities, you know, myself in, in the city of Vancouver, you know, we don't necessarily feel the effects as quickly as perhaps more rural areas, remote areas. And, and so both of you are in uh, very, very remote places in British Columbia. Are, are these communities seeing the effects of, of climate change right now? Yeah, I'll jump in there, Brent. Go ahead, Patrick. Absolutely. The communities that we work with are experiencing 
um, severe and increasing impacts from climate change ranging probably the most immediate impact is the wildfires that we've seen uh, over the last uh, several years which have been breaking records year after year so the communities that we work with have been directly impacted by those that includes being evacuated or uh, dealing with the fallout of the fires uh, on their land base and their economic and social foundations and other impacts that we're seeing also include we work with a lot of coastal communities that are dealing with sea level rise and increasing storm surges and increased erosion in their communities and there's a whole host of other impacts that we see landslides from unstable lands that are impacted by increasing storm events flooding we had a project out by hope that was flooded quite severely a few days after we completed it um, so we're seeing direct and immediate impacts all over the province and the communities that we work with are really struggling with it. Now, uh, what is the wildfire climate change response and what part does the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program play into that? Well, it's it's been a really interesting experience for us to see how uh, our program and in particular the trails that we've been working on with First Nation and non-First Nation communities around the province have played. So in 2017, there was some pretty severe wildfires in the Caribou-Chilcotin region, which is an area we've worked in for several years. So we got a chance to see how this was playing out in real time in ways that were really surprising uh, to us. So a number of our communities were evacuated that we work with. You know, they were living in emergency centers for uh, weeks at a time, sometimes even, even longer, months at a time. And once they returned to the community and we returned and started working again, we started hearing stories from them about how they saw the trails and the recreation culture that they've been developing around them uh, had an impact on their community and their ability to respond to the crisis. And I remember speaking with one elder in particular who was telling me, you know, no one got sick when we were evacuated and we went to the emergency centers, this can often be a really dangerous time, particularly for people whose health is not in the best condition. It's a traumatic experience. It's very stressful. Their immune systems are compromised. They're living in unsanitary conditions. Uh, and quite often people get sick. Uh, people get pneumonia and other types of illnesses and there can be fatalities. It, this happens all the time. It's a very risky situation for people to be in. And they were really thrilled that no one got sick. They were really worried about it. And that community in particular had done a lot of things over the years to increase the health and well-being of their community. They had community gardens. People were eating better. But they really credited the trails as playing an important role in that. Um, Ten minutes of walking a day can make a fundamental difference in a person's health. So when they were evacuated, they were in better health, they were better able to respond to the stress of the situation, and they didn't get sick. That's a really big deal. When we're talking about dealing with climate change, we're talking about those types of immediate health impacts. The other piece of it was when they returned and they learned that despite there had been you know, widespread damage to the forest, they hadn't lost any of their trails. And they were really thrilled about that. And they held a trail celebration to actually celebrate that. It was a way of bringing the community back and, and celebrating that they got through this, this traumatic event and rebuilding that solidarity and sense of connection to the land that they've called home for thousands of years. So that was really exciting. Another piece of it was that the young men and women that we trained up on our trail crews, they 
gained the types of experience and skills that allowed them to successfully secure employment in the firefighting response. So they got to go out and take part in fighting for and protecting their communities. So they had gained skills in teamwork and leadership, working in the woods safely. They use a lot of the same tools when it comes to firefighting. In a lot of ways, building a fire break is not that much different than building a trail, except the trail is, is harder. And they're used to getting up and working really long, hard hours every day. So they make great candidates for the fire response and it increased their chances of success. So that was really important. In a, in a larger view, when it came to the region, so when the city of Williams Lake, almost the entire city was evacuated and the region was evacuated, 40,000 people uh, were forced to leave their homes. When people started returning, one of the struggles that the community had was getting people to come home because they have a large base of young people and labor that didn't have really strong connections to the community. So when they were gone for a month, they got other employment. They weren't coming back. So the community was reopening businesses, trying to get things started up again, and they were struggling to get those people to come back. Now, the people who did come back were the recreation community, the mountain bikers, the hikers, the trail runners, the people who had built those trails and had really strong connections to the community. And these are all critical issues around building healthy, resilient, adaptive communities that are going to be able to respond to this crisis. We are locked into at least 1.5 degrees of warming over the next century, hopefully, if not more. So one of the big things that I think about as a community planner working in BC is how can we help the communities get through this crisis? And that's actually a space where trails and mountain biking in particular can have a huge contribution. I think it's a story that we need to be getting out there as much as possible. And it's one of the reasons that over the last two years, our program has been supported and we are working with the Canada Red Cross and we're seen as a legitimate part of the wildfire response. So we've been going around the province, training up youth crews, working with the local firefighting brigades to make sure that they're getting the kind of training that they'll need to be a part of the response. The trails that we're planning now are part of the fuel management around the community. So we're seeing all these synergies that I think is actually really exciting. Yeah, it's it's uh it's amazing. You know, just for for some context for for folks that might be familiar with with freeride mountain biking. I mean, this is Williams Lake is uh James Dorfling for example, pr- professional rider and and he was out there fighting these forest fires as well. Um and and he didn't go to Red Bull Rampage that year and and he he said that I haven't ridden my mountain bike. I've been protecting my community. You know, it was it was this story that it, everybody was out there kind of doing something. And, and if you had the skill set, you were out there helping. And, uh, and it's, it's pretty amazing to, to kind of, it, it makes me very proud to kind of see how these trail building skills can be really put to, to use in, in other avenues. I mean, we, we do use a Pulaski, we use a fireman's ax when we're building trails and, and, uh, and it gets that name for a reason. What I'm hearing, which I think is, is really amazing and, and not something that I, I kind of initially thought of, but you know, I, I'm, for me, I'm always trying to think about what's the problem. How do I fix the problem? And, and always looking outward for solutions and in all sorts of avenues of my life. But what, what I, what I'm hearing is that 
this is this is kind of looking inward. This is looking within the community, and it's it's not necessarily addressing the problem that is climate change, but making sure that our communities are strong and resilient and adaptable. And that's something that I just I, ne- I never really thought of as being a way that we can kind of address climate change is, is just making sure that we're stronger. I think that one component too, you know, just to to bump on top of of what Patrick was saying is that you know, having these trail systems in community, it does provide access for response. It does provide, and as Patrick said, you know, mountain bike trails, I equate them all the time to individuals who worked on fire lines. They're really fancy fire breaks. They're really, really fancy hand-built fire breaks. And a properly maintained trail corridor that's brushed to a, a three-meter standard that BC Parks and Rec Sites and Trail uses is essentially a functional fire break for um, grass fires and for for low um, low burning fires. You know, once you get into the forest canopy, it's a whole different problem. But when they're a grass fire, or a low burning fire, those trails do provide some fire breaking. And having those included, as Patrick said, in the the fire management strategy, they also provide access. You know, a lot of times when we're building trail networks in some small communities, we're always thinking about emergency access or access for workers. And sometimes that means reopening, you know, roadways that go farther out of the community in order to access pieces of trail system. And that keeping those roadways open provides firefighting access. The the physical product of the trail building to some extent is also a component in that, you know, response to fire. And I think we're, you know, we're talking about fire as as BC is, is very well aware that with the warming climate, with this, this change in our environmental systems, Fire is how BC is experiencing it in the interior. It's the main way that we're seeing a large difference in in our local environments is, is the intensity of fires, the increasing number, you know, and just the impact those are having on our on our communities. You know, I think when when we work within communities and, and we see climate change firsthand, you know, I think it's it's easy to just forget that this is actually still a debated topic. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, I see it working in the winter with, with, uh, the avalanche industry and, and being out in the snow, you know, I see winters very differently than, than what they used to be, but, but there's still a, a very large group of people that, that don't believe that climate change or, or human caused climate change is real. And, and it's, it's, challenging to kind of understand that a, a little bit especially when when you see things firsthand it's it's not just you know believing it and and having faith that this is a real thing it's actually seeing it firsthand you know i think we're coming right now here in, in canada we're coming out of an election that everybody was talking about climate change and it it coincided with climate action strikes that happened all over the the country and all over the world you know, I had an opportunity to speak with with all of my candidates uh, in in my local candidates, my, all my members of parliament that are running. And what was amazing, I just kind of said, like, what's the number one issue for you? And and every single one of them said climate change, including the conservative candidate. It was I didn't lead him down that road. I just said, what do you think the biggest problem is right now? And and he instantly said climate change. And whether or not you know they had actual things that would address it in their in their platform is a different story but nonetheless it was it was there and whether it's being used as just a buzzword or that we're all consciously at it it seems like this is something that uh that going forwards climate change is going to be a big part of of everything that we do 
you know, and I think perhaps there might be some some geographical changes as well. You know, if if we're looking at our right wing politics as as believing in climate change, you know, when we look south of the border of the United States, that might not necessarily be the case. You know, there's a, a man sitting in the the White House that is uh, actively denying that climate change exists, and so I'm led to believe that his supporters also don't believe in in climate change. Do you do you have conversations with people that that don't believe in climate change? You know, within these communities, outside these communities, do you find that everybody within these communities are are pretty? Uh, they're kind of on board, and they 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 believe that this thing is real. Or, or what do you see out there? It's for me, it's pretty rare these days to have a conversation with someone who actively denies the idea of climate change. I think the narrative has very much flipped on that. For the most part, the people we work with are seeing the impacts on a, uh, you know, in a way that affects them very personally and in an intimate way on a, on a daily basis. So it's much more real for them. Um, you know, I'm often shocked when the wildfires were happening, like I was very aware of what was happening around the province, but at the time I was living in the lower mainland and I was shocked by how few people knew what was going on until the smoke started to blow in. Um, and then suddenly it became personal. So up north and in the interior regions, I, I really don't find that to be the, the case. Um, there's still a lot of debate and discussion now over, you know, how to respond to it. Um, you know, does it make sense for, say, you know, Canada to take all this effort and change our economic foundations if no one else is, et cetera? The, like those kinds of – that seems to be the discussion that people are having. And there's a lot of fear around what it means and, and what can be done around it effectively. And this is where I think you can't change people's minds a lot of the time based on just facts and information. It's people having those personal, intimate experiences and the stories that we're telling around it. And I think this is where the mountain bike community can can play a role. And one of the things we're doing is like developing a narrative about how trails can be an important part of building healthy and resilient communities and bringing people together. And I think one of the key parts when it comes to actually addressing climate change, because so far we've talked about adapting to it, mitigating the impacts, but there still has to be a conversation around how specifically are we reducing our contribution to the problem. And there definitely needs to be some good conversations around just reducing our carbon footprint, you know, riding to the trails, et cetera. Those things are all really important and need to be done. But overall, I think one of the narrative shifts that's occurring within the mountain bike community that I think we need to tap into and integrate climate change as part of it is how people are viewing their relationship to the land and the trails that they're riding. You know, I think when I first started getting involved in mountain biking and, and the community, it was a real sense that, mountain biking was a very consumer extractive driven kind of relationship with the land. You know, we buy very expensive bikes and we go out and we have this experience that someone has built for us. It's, you know, very kind of consumer driven. And a good example of this that I, I really like using is the Burns Lake club up North. Like when they first started developing as a mountain bike destination, they, they said, we want to become a mountain bike destination. We want people from around the world to come and ride our trails. You know, it was, they wanted to build something that had economic 
opportunities as part of it to help their community recover from the decline in the forestry industry. Now, when you talk to them, they've shifted their narrative and they talk about becoming a mountain bike town, a mountain bike community. And they've developed a huge club of 200 members in a small community of 2,500 people. They use that to keep people in the community after the the decline of the industry. So they've changed their relationship with the trails and with the land from something that's consumer and extractive to something that's much more intimate and sustainable and long term. And I think that's the kind of discussion that we need to be having in the mountain bike community. You know, we talk about tourism, we talk about traveling, we talk about going out and seeing all these different trails around the province. But a big part of the mountain bike community is about place. It's about really getting to know where you live and developing a relationship around that that's based on long-term sustainability. And when we talk about really reducing our footprint and we talk about changing and decarbonizing our economy, that's the kind of narrative that we need to be thinking of. Go ahead, Jay. To speak to kind of two things you mentioned, Brandon, is firstly, you know, in my experience over the last year working in these remote communities, you know, with, with, with First Nations peoples, I, I, you know, my experience was is, to a large extent, there's a stronger connection to past and history and, and the, the telling of histories and the, the, you know, a, a stronger connection to how the world has evolved around these communities. I think to some extent, I experienced a greater awareness in these communities of the changes that have happened because of that connection to history and that culture around storytelling and where they came from, where their people have lived, what their people have done and where their people are going is they've got this kind of like bigger timeline they look at that provides them with a greater insight and a, and a greater acceptance of the fact that our world has changed around us, that, that we aren't living in the same climate we lived in before, that, that, that things are different. There's less fish in the river. There's less snow on the mountains. You know, the, there's less wildlife. Their ancestors hunted moose. There's no moose anymore. It, there's, because of that storytelling and that historical component that at a settler community, especially in Canada, doesn't have. We don't have connection beyond 300 years. We don't have that histo- this, this long-range, long-time perspective. Um, uh, and, and looking at long-time is, is a big thing when we're dealing, th- dealing with things on the scale of, of climate change and, and, and the scale of you know, human settlement and human growth and how that's impacted our climate and our world. And then to speak to kind of your question in regards to, you know, dealing with this oppositional nature of climate change has become this polarizing issue. Is it anthro, is it an anthropological thing? Is it a, a natural, we're living in a natural occurrence that just happens from time to time as, as some, you know, deniers would, would want to say is you see it, at least in my, you know, exposure to the world, I, I see this perspective put forward sometimes that if everything that we do and that we can do to either prevent or react to climate change is something that's better for the world in another way as well. And if we do everything we can and we make every effort we can to address climate change and prevent climate change, even if we were absolutely wrong, the world's going to still end up being a better place. So why not do it anyways? Like, mm-hmm. even if you want to be a complete 100% denier of, <laughs> of human-caused climate change, it's like, what's wrong with doing all these things that are just making the world a better place? Yeah. You know, yeah. it, 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 to me, it's like, I don't even want to have that argument, but that's the best argument against it. It's like, these things are all good, so why not do them anyways, even if you don't believe, even if you don't want to believe? 
like let's not have the argument let's just say let's just do stuff because it's good <laughs> you know it, it, it's going to be a better community yeah it, i think jay what that brings into into uh into perspective something that i've heard recently especially with with just following the the protests and 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 the protests locally around vancouver as well is is that action on on climate change cannot happen um, or must happen alongside reconciliation and and i think that i think that in some respects we can learn more about reconciliation and develop a better stronger relationship as settlers uh, with with the first nations people through addressing a, a shared challenge a shared crisis you know i think about the the great work that the aboriginal youth mountain bike program has done and and how you know bringing mountain bike communities together with these first nations communities and and starting these conversations and starting these relationships you know that is the first step with reconciliation is just you know coming together talking discussing breaking bread uh, that type of thing and so perhaps you know us working together for the greater good addressing climate change is one of those things that we can try to do to start working and and communing with each other and bringing two two communities together i fully agree i think you know the conservation world and the natural sciences and, and biological sciences worlds are doing that through traditional ecological knowledge it's something that's being you know, studied and researched and integrated into landscape level planning, into academic studies that it's, it's been very well documented that traditional ecological knowledge is something that, that's, that science and academia has kind of not tapped into that, that's really important. And they're using that as a way to create reconciliation between, you know, the academia and science world and, and, and reconciling with, with the, the communities that have lived here you know, far beyond our experience and, and, and seeing what their knowledge of this land is and integrating that into, into decision making or into research. And, and totally, I think it's something, you know, it's a way to bridge the gaps for us as well as mountain bikers, as working on the land and creating, you know, trail systems on the land. It, it's a way to really start talking about that. I think uh, adding on to that, I think, Brent, you really kind of, hit on something that's really important when it comes to dealing with climate change and reconciliation. And that I absolutely agree that that's, those two things are absolutely connected. In fact, the, the line between the connection between European colonialism in the Americas and climate change has a history and a, and a, a long story to it. You know, there was a recent really good, study that came out in quaternary journal from the i think it's the london college of economics i'd have to look up the exact place but the study talked about the authors of the study were trying to figure out what was the origins of the 200 years of cooling that happened between the 1500s and the 1600s and and why this occurred and their hypothesis was that there wasn't any natural uh events during that time that could explain why there was this 200 year point of cooling that was called like the little ice age. And they looked, their study concluded that it had to do with uh, European 
colonialism and that the the great dying because there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 100 million people who were living in the Americas at that time and over a 300 year period that population was reduced to five or ten percent of what it had been and they had contrary to popular belief very extensive agricultural systems throughout the Americas that they estimate was probably equivalent to the size of France at the time so when the population was reduced so drastically those fields and those agriculture systems went to fallow and then there was a, a sharp regrowth in vegetation and jungle that sucked up enough oxygen or enough carbon dioxide sorry out of the atmosphere that it lowered global temperatures by 3 degrees which caused you know the Thames River to freeze over or snowstorms in Portugal and widespread famine and, and starvation across Europe at that time and, and around the world. So our relationship between each other here in the Americas has long been connected to climate change. And as, as I was saying before, when it comes to our relationship, like it's long, our experiences here in the Americas as settlers and non-Indigenous peoples has long been about capitalism and extractive industries and a skewered relationship that needs to be reset. So to me, reconciliation is absolutely the gateway to which we need to pass in order to get to a point where we can have a stabilized climate and start dealing with some of these issues. Mm. So Jay, something you mentioned last episode was that there's an opportunity here to kind of capitalize on on this as trail associations in the sense that if we work to actively address climate change, then we become a partner, we become an ally to other groups. And, and that could be municipalities, that could be land managers, uh, and that could be other organizations like uh, active transportation organizations. And, and it's one of those things where I think we're seeing it right now where a number one mandate of municipalities is addressing climate change. And so if we have a trail association that is in line with that mandate, then, then we have an opportunity to work more closely with, with those groups. And so, you know, going forwards, you know, you know, what kind of things can that look like? Is that, is that partnering with cycling associations? Is that changing maybe some of the language in, in what our organization mandates are? Like, how do we, how do we kind of go down this path of addressing climate change? I think to some extent it involves broadening, not necessarily our scope, but our vision of what mountain bike advocacy groups are and where we fit in the grand scheme of things. I mean, we're always fighting for more support, for more um, buy-in from communities. And I think the more we develop these relationships with, with groups that we wouldn't traditionally align ourselves with or they don't see ourselves as having productive conversations with, I think we need to start broadening our vision of where we fit. Mountain biking, especially in the context of BC, is the group that's creating the largest number of trails. We're maintaining the largest number of trails. They're being accessed by other communities. And we work with those communities, whether it's equestrians or hikers or trail runners or, or what have you. I think we also need to start looking at how we fit in with conservation groups, how we fit in with active transportation groups, and ensuring that we're involved in landscape level planning as, as users of the landscape, as well as you know how we relate to First Nations communities whose land on it, it is we recreate. I think we need to start participating in these larger landscape level discussions, in these community climate action plans, in forest fire management planning. A lot of communities in the BC context are starting to work on 
landscape level fire breaks and fuel modification programs. And these are going to happen on the lands where our trails are. And we need to ensure that we're parts of the, a part of this process, that we're working in the right way towards these processes, that we you know, align ourselves with the goals and visions of, of these other groups to the extent that we can. In the end, a mountain bike advocacy group's role is to protect trails and to maintain awesome trail networks. And I think we can do that while also being bigger people, looking at the bigger picture and understanding where we fit within this larger schema. When you know I was in Kelowna working with MTB Co., we started down that road and a lot of the things that we got done were, you know, we had a very low membership. We have a, a city of about 90 to 100,000 people. We have 250 yeah. members, but a lot of our um, efforts that were successful were because of the relationships we built within the larger, you know, landscape of advocacy groups of the city of the regional district. And we built those partnerships through working on larger regional discussions through participating in economic development discussions through participating in parks planning processes, even when they may have not invited mountain bike trails, we were there at the table, having an opinion, listening to other people's issues and problems and trying to find a place for our voice at these other at these other tables and within these other discussions. And I think that's something that that clubs need to do because we are, you know, citizens of our locale. We we are, you know, residents. We we do have emotions and feelings and opinions about these other issues. And mountain bike advocacy is a way to get into those rooms and have those discussions from the lens of being a recreationist. And I think that's something that clubs if they aren't looking at that, they need to start looking at that. It's the same as the diversity discussion we had, you know, when the podcast first come up is, is, you know, we need to realize that mountain biking doesn't exist within its own little closed off world. And we can just work on mountain biking stuff. It's like, you know, we need to be a part of these larger discussions about diversity, about conservation issues, about climate change, about building healthy communities we have an audience and we have some goals, but we also gain clout and we gain momentum through that that we're able to enact larger change. I think it's really important we, we see the bigger picture. Patrick, do you got anything to add? I think the only thing I would add is as a community planner, I think communities need to look at trails and nature areas as a part of an extension to their community. So increasing the ability of people to walk out their door, jump on their bike and be able to ride to a trail uh, is going to be absolutely critical part of lowering our carbon footprint when it comes to mountain biking. And that's about all I would really add to that. I, I do speak about that a lot with the communities up North. Like my goal is always to be that you should ride off the trail onto a municipal path and right to a pub. I think um, one more thing that I, I'd love to add, yeah. um, Brent, and you can you can choose to add this in or not. But the one, th you know, I do a lot of research around bikes and, and mountain biking and, and stuff um, when thinking about a lot of stuff. And an interesting point that I, I recently learned about that I think people in the the bike community, the mountain bike community, should know about is that our history, the history of bikes and people and recreation and climate change has a really strong link. As I was talking a little bit earlier about, you know, colonialism and, and the, the little ice age that occurred in the 1500s, 1600s, uh, the bike itself came about as the result of a climate crisis. And what happened is in, I think it was 1816 or 1815, 
there was a volcanic eruption in Indonesia, uh, Mount, uh, Mount Tambora, and it was the largest volcanic eruption in recorded history. Pretty much destroyed the island and released enough carbon and ash into the atmosphere that it cooled global temperatures for several years. And it was felt around the world. And then again, Europe was hit by it really hard. The Thames was freezing over and there were severe disruptions to agriculture across the continent, which was exacerbated by the Napoleonic Wars that were happening at the time. And because there was there wasn't enough oats being grown, horses were dying, like 10,000 horses died over, over a winter and industry ground to a halt. And then amidst this chaos, there was this self-styled inventor and mathematician in Germany by the name of Carl von Drace. And he loved uh, ice skating and hobby horses for some reason. And he inspired by that and with the idea that he could make a machine that would replace the need for horses, he created what he called the Laf machine, which means the running machine, uh, which was the precursor for the bicycle. It's very much like what kids are riding now, strider bikes. Think about that, but larger. And that was the very first bicycle that was invented. Now, it never replaced horses at the time, but it did become really popular, especially especially among the upper classes as a form of recreation. So the entire idea of the bicycle was born out of a climate crisis. It was born out of a, a shift in the climate. And now what we're seeing here in BC, of what I was talking about earlier about how bikes and trails are being used to respond to the crisis and being used to create healthy, resilient, adaptive communities, the bicycle has a role to play in how we're going to get through this crisis. And that's something uh, we're thinking about and being inspired by. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much to to both of you for for taking the time to chat with me today to to kind of tackling this topic for sharing what's happening with the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. It's uh, I'm always uh, curious about. It. I always want to get an update and learn more about it because it's just such an an amazing program. And uh, and and thanks again, both of you. Thank you again, Brant, for like, giving me a platform to ramble because we all know <laughs> I love to ramble. <laughs> Happy to. Thanks, Brant. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. still listening to the podcast and I want to express the biggest thank you possible. Bikes can change the world. And next episode, we'll be hearing about how mountain biking is teaching kids cycling competency, meaning that future generations will be more adaptable at transporting themselves around the cities that they live in and empowering them to choose more active modes of transportation, like cycling. Big thanks to both my guests, Jay and Patrick. I've included links in the show notes to some of the various programs and articles mentioned during our conversation. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and very recently, Spotify. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Wellnack and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontline's. Thanks for listening, and keep on fighting.